Hey there, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Season 5 of Therapy Works. I'm Julia Samuel, author, psychotherapist and new fine podcaster, joined by my amazing daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Join us every week as we dive into our therapy room, sharing stories from voices both known and unknown. Together, we'll navigate life's challenges. Get ready for deep conversations about real struggles. We're firm believers that sharing stories isn't just cathartic, it's profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each chat, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on lessons learned, offering insights for your own life. Our mission? Prove that even tough conversations can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or a first-timer, we are thrilled to have you with us. Each episode aims to leave you with something valuable. So no more waiting. Let's dive into this week's episode, Unpacking Life's Challenges Together. Welcome to Season 5 of Therapy Works. So I am delighted to introduce Henry Copeland to our Therapy Works podcast. And maybe, Henry, you want to kind of introduce yourself first and maybe even start with what the greatest challenges that you are facing. Okay, so I... I'm 43. I live in Cornwall with my yeah. little dog. And my greatest challenge that I'm facing at the moment is not having children as a single woman. And for me, the road is over. So I'm, I'm facing permanent childlessness. I imagine that getting to there, there's been quite a kind of roller coaster of roads of hoping and then being disappointed and hoping and disappointed. Do you want to tell us about that yeah. if that's the case it was really important to me to have a partner to have children with um I didn't want to do it on my own I think I could have done it on my own perfectly capable woman um but mm-hmm. I wanted my children to have a father that was around to love them and raise them with me so for me the the sort of the roller coaster of hope and disappointment came in either meeting and hoping people or not meeting them and feeling disappointed. I was in a relationship in my early 20s with a man who I hoped to marry and have children with. Um, It was a long distance relationship in the end, so it didn't work out. And after that, Mm. there was a bit of a drought for for many, many years. I did meet somebody in my late 30s. Nothing really happened. I think it's probably what you would uh, describe as an emotional affair. He was going through a messy divorce. I was in my late 30s and thinking, I, I don't want to jump on this poor guy just because he could be a potential source of sperms, <laughs> basically. I wanted yeah, to be a sure. Sperm donor. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's not fair on him. It's not, not ideal. Mm. Um, and we, we hung out a lot and it was great. And I, I really thought things were going to happen with him. And then they suddenly didn't because another woman just magically appeared on the scene. So that sort of ended ah. that little Ooh. stream of hope. And I think I, I overreacted to that emotionally and I couldn't really understand why. I couldn't understand why I felt so devastated that it hadn't worked out with him. And that sort of became clear over the next few months. 
And I think it was three months later, I, I had what I can only describe as a grief attack in the shower. Yeah. So it hit you like a storm in your body and a kind of a blast of grief of the reality, I'm going to be childless. I'm never yeah. going to have a child. Yeah, it was, um, it was like a deep knowing. And it was that moment, the moment you see in movies when somebody's loved one gets hit by a bus in front of them and they fall to their knees. It was that moment for yeah. me. I, I was on my Gosh. knees and then I was in the fetal position for I don't know how long. Um, and I, oh, I rather yeah. foolishly thought, oh, well, that's good. I've cried it all out now. I'll be fine. I don't have to have children. But that was just the start. I lived with that. Yeah. It was the start. Yeah. I, I really want to go forward, but there's this question in my mind that I need to go back before I go forward with you, mm-hmm. which is more about me than you, is that drought from your kind of mid-20s to your late 30s. Do you have an understanding of what that was about, that you had no relationships or none that were kind of committed or satisfying or... That, that uh, no, no I didn't have any relationships. I do have an idea, and it's, but I think I think this is always the case. There's no one reason. It's, yeah, it's many, many reasons, and the the key reason at the end of all of it is I just didn't meet a guy who I thought, oh yeah, I like him, and he's not married, and we're in the same country. You know, I just didn't meet person in that time some of that is just random luck isn't it life is our intention and our wanting and our kind of having a picture of what we want and that influences us yeah and probably 50 percent of life is out of our control that we have no control over yeah and you never found the man who's single who wanted a committed relationship who you're in the same country at the same time who liked you enough or loved you enough or wanted to make a relationship with you and you both wanted the same thing at the same time yeah and crucially i i didn't find anybody that i wanted to be with no you know they just yeah. i was like yeah he's all right <laughs> not up to much so there's there's that there's a random chance there's also i i remember making a promise to myself after the first relationship ended that i wasn't going to be with another guy unless it was the final guy i was going to be with forever it was really important to me. And I think wow. I made that promise. And I didn't revisit that until my mid-30s. And I was like, oh, just remembered I made that promise. Oh, I'm undoing that. And then I sort of, I felt much more open to men then. Gosh. Because that's a- quite a promise, isn't it? That's yeah. like That's like keeping the door half shut. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. And that's that was just a very, I was heartbroken and I didn't, really know how to deal with it yeah. sort of way. You know, I was, I was in my early yeah. 20s. I didn't know anything. <laughs> I just don't want to feel like this again. I don't want to be yeah. left again. Yeah. But yeah, I did open the doors again in my late, well, mid, mid-30s mid because I was really desperate to meet somebody to have children with. So I was doing a lot of work on myself, as we all do. Um, but I, I also have my values to live by. I, I can't can't put over hours of my life to swiping left or right on men who are taking selfies of themselves in the bathroom mirror to show their tattooed torso 
when I could be out growing my vegetables with my dog digging by my side or meeting friends for a barbecue on the beach. It just, I can't. Like, life's too precious, isn't it? So that, you know, it's my choice and that's okay. Yeah, so like you said, it does feel like there were lots of, uh, you know, aspects of what got you to be in that shower at that time when you it suddenly hit you like a storm. Yeah. Some of it was your attitude and a kind of unconscious, conscious decision that you'd made. Some of it was your value. Some of it was luck. Some of it was things beyond all of our control. Um and also something about the dating culture of swiping just didn't sort of fit with you, but it is how often people now connect, isn't it? Rather yeah. than on the beach with somebody. Yeah, yeah. And so you said that moment was the beginning of a a grieving process. Yeah. You hoped it would be it, like I'm fine now, but that wasn't the case. I, I really honestly thought that the next morning everything would be fine. <laughs> Yeah, it took a few weeks and just remember walking through the woods where I live. It's really weird. I feel like someone's died. I feel grief. What is going on with that? Eventually I was Googling, can you grieve children that you never had? Yes. And apparently you can. It's a thing. <laughs> it is a real thing. It's a real thing. I mean, thing. you're laughing, but I imagine you really feel such deep and profound sadness as well as laughing yeah yeah it's um it 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 got deeper and deeper and worse over Mm. i'm four years in now gosh and i would say that year one was hard and surprising and i I didn't understand what was really happening year Mm. two was awful I can feel how awful it was. Can you tell me a bit about that, how awful year two was? What what was so awful? It's the most alienated I've ever felt. At the point that I was coming to terms with not having children and feeling all this grief, people were waving their scans in my face. Oh, Henry. And they didn't always realise what they were doing. And I think often they thought that I could be excited for them because they knew how much I longed for my own children. So I would understand how relieved they were. Oh, my goodness. Um, Gosh. Yeah, it was just really hard to talk about. Because I was only, well, I was 40 by this point. Because I was 40, I still had time. And so that every time I tried to talk about it, they would shut me down with, well, you've still got time. Or why don't you just stop? Or, oh, oh, this is my favourite. I'll just go to the pub, get wasted, find a bloke, you'll be pregnant by the end of the night, job done. And that was given as a serious suggestion. And I was like, okay, so you're trying to talk about this really deep loss and this grief that you can't go backwards with. Like once those doors were open for me, there, I, there was nothing I could do to call out of grief again and go back to hoping. I could only go forwards in the grief and hope to come out mm. the other side to something mm. that still looks like a good life that's worth living. So every time you try and talk about that and somebody says, oh, you've still got time, or they're kind of drag, trying to drag you back through the door, they're just 
not meaning to, but they're telling you, I don't want to hear about this and I'm not with you. But they still want you to be excited about their new arrivals. Just this huge distance was creeping in. And I didn't, didn't really know how to navigate it. So there's an online community that I joined and a book mm-hmm. by a wonderful woman called Jodie Day. And the advice in there is to find a new tribe. And I remember joining this community and going, I don't want to find a new tribe. I have got friends that I've been friends with for years who have been by my side through all sorts of things and likewise with them. Why, Why does this need to get in the way of that? So I tried really hard to talk to them. One or two were great and some had really good intentions but I think pretty much every conversation ended with some form of okay well we've talked about that now so that's that we fixed it you can either adopt or you can just put yourself out there get on tinder you'll find somebody everything's fine stop your whinging and that was the sort of feeling that I got and these are really good people and I want to say that in case any of my friends listen to this, I love them all deeply and they're wonderful, but there's just this block around childlessness that is really hard for people to understand. And I was guilty of that before I became childless. Because the thing I'm really getting an insight into is, although the numbers of permanent childlessness, you know, one in five women reach their mid-40s without children, and only 10% of those choose not to have children, and only 10% reach it through infertility, it's an invisible, delegitimized loss. So what you were experiencing was a disenfranchised grief, wasn't it? That you were saying, be with me, hold me in this place, allow me to feel what I'm feeling, allow me to express it, hear me, and support me and what you got from people who really loved you and it was their version of loving you but it wasn't received by you as meeting you where you were at was how to fix it adopt get pissed make a baby with a stranger go on tinder go to a sperm donor but all of that completely missed this door that you knew was closed for you, this wasn't about finding a different route to having a child. This was you wanting to be supported, given that you knew now that at the age you were then and now, you were permanently childless. And that was what you were needing to grieve. That was a real experience for you. That was a very real experience for me. And it's still a really real experience for me. My children just feel so real to me. Like, I, I, now I feel absolutely fine without having a partner. And I imagine I probably won't find a partner, at least not imminently. I'm, I'm not interested. I just want to go and live my life now. Finding a partner was really important for me in order to bring my children into the world. And that's over. So, but yeah, my children. They feel very real to me. They always have. 
with people not meeting me where I was with that, I think that was harder than the grief itself. And I think it's kept me in the grief for much longer than I've needed to be. And I mean the deep grief. I think the grief will always be there, but the the really deep, yeah. heavy grieving process. The, the heavy lifting of grief. Yeah. Tell me about your children that you grieve and miss. Do you have an, an image of them, a picture of them? It sounds like there's more than one. I always wanted to have three children. Um, I long, long ago chose uh, two boys' names, two girls' names. My horrible brother took one of the boys' names for one of his sons, so that left me with three names. And I thought, well, I won't choose another one because I might jinx things. <laughs> so in my head, my children... So interesting, magical thinking, isn't it? Yeah, in my head, my children are called Sam, Maggie and B. I don't know anything about them. I don't know what colour their eyes are. I don't know what colour their hair is. I don't know what they sound like when they laugh. But I feel them all the time. Yeah. I can really hear that deep sadness of, like, having their names, knowing their names, and yet not seeing them physically, not hearing their voices, not knowing in a more kind of embodied way, their personalities. Yeah. So it feels like a, like an almost double grief, like you've pictured them and you've given them names, but you're grieving also that you didn't get to meet them and know them. Yeah. A couple of years ago, my dog and my sister's dog went missing and they were down a badger set. Uh, we didn't know where they were, but we were pretty sure they were underground somewhere and it was five days. And we were both obviously hoping that, that we would find our dogs, stuck our heads down badger's holes. <laughs> we whistled in rabbit warrens. We, you know, we did the lot. And we were both there together waiting to pull our dogs out of the earth, out of these deep holes. And we did get them back. So that was the happy ending. With childlessness, that's what it feels like to me, that we've all got our children down these badger sets and we're just waiting for them to come out. And so I, I feel like my children are as real as your children. I feel like they're as real as my nieces and nephews. They're not real to anybody else, but they are so real to me, like to the point that I imagine when I die, they'll be there. And I'll be like, oh, there you are, which sounds so ridiculous. So, it doesn't. I can really picture them. Where I was picturing them was also picturing the kind of chilly loneliness of you picturing them and nobody else picturing them. So because when you talked about the, the your dogs going um, underground, you were with your sister and you did it together. So you whistled together and hoped together and cried together and prayed together and you both knew what you were missing and looking for. You had an image of the dogs, names of the dogs, so you shared it. Yeah. I think what sounds particularly kind of almost crazy making psychologically is no one gets you. No one gets this experience. So you carry it completely alone. So it kind of invades you because, and that's when it gets stuck. Like you feel mm. if you'd been understood and heard and allowed, 
then probably it could have kind of come through you in a way. You could have adapted, but it's like it's stuck in you because everybody keeps doing these quick fixes and in some way dismissing you. That's all anybody needs to hear, really. You've just, you've just summed up the whole thing. Yeah, with the dogs, it wasn't just my sister. Our friends, our neighbours, parents, whole family, everybody was out. It was a full coming together. And that, that is missing. It's kind of missing all the time. Like Christmas, when our family gathered together and my siblings are there with their children. But I'm the only one aware of who am, who's missing. And I think with grief of a, a real person, <laughs> there's some acknowledgement like, oh, I'm so sad that so-and-so is not here today, or you must be feeling that. But there's, there's nothing, because nobody knows that. Even though they know that I'm grieving childlessness, they don't feel a connection to my child. I wonder if there's a ritual that you could introduce at significant times that in some way kind of represents this invisibility. Because in your message to me, you said an unexpected route to healing has come through creativity and reconnecting with my true self and learning to let go of societal norms. It's both liberating and terrifying at the same time. Which is that there's an, another point to that that I want us to get to, but I was thinking about your creativity, like using your creativity to create something that represents your three children that you can bring to birthdays and Christmases and family gatherings so that you feel they're less invisible, that you make them visible in some way. Yeah, I have come up with all sorts of fun rituals over the last few years. <laughs> My, my very lovely younger sister uh, came with me into the woods one day. I said, look, I need to get these children out of my system. And we have a ceremony. We ended up, we gathered some limpet shells and some periwinkles, one for each child. We stood at the bottom of a small waterfall together and I read a letter to my children, floated these shell babies downstream. That was a really beautiful uh, thing to do with my sister. That sounds so beautiful and moving. Yeah, it was really special. And I go back there a lot mm. and I stand by the waterfall. Mm. feel like they are kind of there. Yeah. And I brought some of the shingle back home with me, put it into some mm. little mugs with tea-like handles. I, I was thinking the other day that the, the number one thing that would help is if we could normalise some sort of ceremony for people like me. And I, I had the sort of the, the idea of bringing together those friends and family who would go along with it to actually have a proper ceremony, ritual, and to be welcomed into the world then as a childless woman. Because yes. it's such a huge identity shift that you sort of feel like you've been cast out of society. Exiled. Yeah, yeah, it really, really feels like that. And normally, if, you, if you're sort of cast out, you go through your 
initiation and then you're welcomed back in as a new mother or as somebody who can no longer walk or whatever it is. But when it's so invisible, you're never really welcomed back in as who you are. I find that so powerful and moving. And, you know, when you connected with the Facebook group or whatever group it was of childless people, it was a bit like you were saying, I don't want to be a group that is exiled. You know, I value these people, of course, but I want to be integrated and have a representation and be acknowledged as who I am as Henry, who is childless. And it's not a chosen channel, it's a loss. So it's, I don't know if it's the equivalent of a baptism and a funeral or, but something that, some ritual that represents you coming back and being integrated and naming and not shaming, allowing, but acknowledging both the loss the names of your three unborn children and yourself as a fully kind of woman because there's something about society that everything revolves around families and people with kids. They get to leave work early or they don't come in because their child is sick or, you know, for all the reasons that we all understand. But you're then left on the sidelines working over Christmas because you don't have children. I'm not maybe speaking to you exactly, but to lots of People who don't have children, and it's men too. I mean, you're particularly interested in women because you're a woman, but I imagine there's, I don't know what the numbers are for childless men, but they certainly exist, don't they? Yeah, they do. And the grief exists for them as well. Obviously, it's a lot harder for them as men to talk about that. And I I don't feel like I can talk about it for them. But yeah, it's, it's huge. And I think... I think that word exile is really, that really, really resonates with me. And it's how I feel still four years later. And I would say that in my psyche, I have kind of come to the conclusion that I need to remain exiled in order to survive because I've tried to get back into the mainstream and I, I can't do it because I can't just shed the grief and be who I was. I've tried. It doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. So unless, unless I can be welcomed in with the grief, I can't be whole. So it's better for me to remain exiled. And that sounds a really weird thing to say out loud, but I think I'm pretty sure most of the childless single women who are grieving or in that grief zone would probably say the same. I don't think it's strange in the sense that grief is naturally adaptive. And so the task of mourning is to face the reality of the loss as we see it. And the single biggest kind of predictor of our outcome is the love and support of others given that we are grieving love, it's the love of others that enable us to survive and 
accommodate our loss, begin to develop a new normal and engage with life changed by our experience. And I think what you're very explicitly saying is until I am seen as someone who is grieving and legitimately grieving this this loss, how can I re-engage with life? Because people are seeing me as I was in my 20s, which is to have hope to have a partner and have a child. And that isn't who I am now. So whilst I don't want to be in exile, I need to be true to myself and who I find myself to be at 43, living in this world. And if you don't see me as I see me, then there is this gap between us that puts me outside of you. I don't even really know what to say to that because it's so it feels so right. And yet there is a resistance within me because I know that I want to get back. And I hope I hope that I can find a way to do that alone. But also I think that the way to do that alone is, is to remain exiled in some capacity. Well I think this conversation is a way towards it, I must say. I was wondering about your creativity of what supported you and what, given that you are grieving and it's an ongoing loss that is unrecognised and disenfranchised, what are the supports that you find within yourself and for yourself that means that you actually got up today and had a day, (laughs) you know, that you didn't collapse? I I turned to paints a lot. and I think that was partly making it something visually representative of something that I couldn't necessarily say out loud. Um, and painting gave me a way of giving voice to a lot of complicated, not necessarily feelings, but a general sense of place in the world and how this was all playing out for me. Um, I remember early days sort of drawing images of myself on one side of a river and everybody else on the other side of a river and seeing them with their lives and that sort of thing. And those, that, that visualisation helped to, to understand it myself. And then, yeah, I've done a lot of expressive painting. I think most people look at what I've painted and go, oh, that's angry. And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> So yeah. right, it is. I yeah. am. I mean, you must be furious, no? Furious at all of it. I think there's quite a lot of rage. <laughs> yeah. I have. I may have I mean, beaten up laughing, a few trees. But it's like, <laughs> oh my god, it's yeah. literally like that. I I have literally whacked trees with branches that have then broken and s- smacked me in the eye, uh, and I have <laughs> thrown rocks at rocks. And <laughs> my dog's had a field day chasing it all. <laughs> so yeah, there's lots of. Uh, but does that stuff. release you, the battling in the in the nature, the whacking a tree with a stick or a rock with a rock? Is that kind of, is there a release that comes from that, feeling the force of your fury whacking against yeah. trees yeah. and rocks? And... I think that's the problem with the disenfranchised grief is you, I think it's probably a, a problem with grief anyway, but you feel like you're a, a container and what's inside is expanding but your body isn't expanding with it so it's it's just coming out here out of your chest and you're like oh my god this has got to go somewhere i cannot hold it and then the rage comes out 
And as soon as the rage is out, it turns to just pure griefy sadness, sort of collapsed on the floor yeah. sadness. And then it's like, oh, thank yeah. God, that's out. Okay, now I can move on with the day. The image you have of yourself is like this pressure cooker and it just... And when you do release it, the rage is the froth on top that other people find indigestible and kind of frightened of and they back away from you. Yeah. So that's why you have to use trees and rocks and stamp and do it on your own. But once you're sad, that's more kind of socially acceptable. So I guess then people can move towards you. And that's one of the difficulties. I mean, there's so much of grief, which is rage and fury, but leaves you more alone because people find it threatening because it's like, ah, it's expressed. But with you, I can really picture your sadness, like you become fetal. You become your unborn child in some way. Yeah, I think uh, I think they're all inside of me. <laughs> That's a weird one to carry. Is I kind of am parenting, although I'm not parenting, but I'm currently parenting all of the small me's who are so angry with me for not having children. And they are throwing proper tantrums. <laughs> Gosh, I can really picture that. These these kind of tantruming two-year-olds and four-year-olds and eight-year-olds who want to like get me out of here, let me be born into the world. And I can't help thinking because I'm a therapist, is there a direct line between them and a two-year-old, a four-year-old, an eight-year-old you that wasn't heard when you were distressed or... So is there a young you that links to the wounds of them? So when I was five months old, my father had a stroke. So mum and dad were sort of gone out of the picture while he was in recovery. Um, and at the time I was being breastfed. I really, <laughs> this happened, absolutely. I was walking through the woods and I suddenly just fell and started crying. And I knew 100% I was five months old. I had no doubt about it. I don't remember that. But as I was crying, I was like, oh, this is my five-month-old self who was abandoned, quite rightly, because dad was very ill, but who felt very abandoned. The body yeah. holds the school. Yeah. Um, and then I had a, a tough time around about 10 years old. And that was to do with, family financial problems and mum suddenly going out to work and dad, because of his stroke, not, not being a, the best dad at picking you up on time from school, that sort of thing. Um, and I had my younger sister was three or four at that point. So I was sort of mothering her in mum's absence. And I kind of remember a feeling of just hold it all together because one day you'll be married and you'll have children and then you'll belong and then you'll have your family. And you'll be okay. And I think that she in particular is really, really very upset with me for not making that happen. Yes, because it was another promise you made to yourself when you were young. Like that young child said, don't worry, you'll get there. You'll be all right. Yeah. Once you have your own children, everything will be fine. Does she feel abandoned or disappointed or betrayed or left? What's she saying? 
I think she feels completely alone in the world. And that, that is the feeling now as well because of not having the partner, not having the children, not having the support, feeling that exiled. It's not loneliness. Like it's not loneliness to talk to somebody. It's an, like an existential loneliness, a sort of feeling of being untethered. <laughs> like if you were drowning in the sea, you'd be the last to be rescued because you're nobody's priority. That sort of existential alone in the worldness, which the grown-up me is, can handle, but the 10-year-old me, she can't handle. I was wondering whether the adult you can take the 10-year-old you into your arms and tell her it's okay, I've got you, and take her into a kind of safe place, like, it's all right. I mean, there's a reality, there's an untetheredness I get of living alone that you don't have your person who's looking out for you and that you're looking out for them. So that's reality. But the adult you can cope with that, whereas a 10-year-old is like, I'm going to die. And so I was kind of thinking, you know, visualization I would do with you if I was working with you is kind of give that 10-year-old time to speak and say what she's feeling and what she needs and what she's frightened of and kind of invite her to come towards you as the adult. And does she trust you? Is she a bit wary of you? And over building over time, building a relationship of trust where she comes with you and you take her to a safe place within you, which might be a beach in Cornwall or in your woods or by that waterfall. Yeah. So that then she's not in that trauma place, basically. Yeah. Uh, I've been working with a really wonderful woman and that's a lot of what we've been doing. It is really helpful. That's great. So we're coming to the end I mean, I've really appreciated the honesty of your conversation and kind of how emotionally open you've been and where you're at. Do you have something that if other childless uh, women and men are listening, something that you think would be helpful for them to know that you've learned through this long, painful process? But there is a different life ahead. And it might not feel like you're in it yet, but there's a transformation that you're going to go through and it's going to be brutally painful, but it is going to open your soul in the same way that having your children would have opened your soul. And you will become truer to yourself and you will live a life that you feel proud of. I mean, that sounds a really powerful vision and image of your kind of soul expanding that has hope that as brutally painful as this is, you get to a place and the brutality has changed you and opened your soul and opened you to a place that you can be at peace with. Is that the right word? Or you can hold both the loss and the peace? Like I have ambitions for my life. I've 
been writing through all of this. I've written a memoir about this whole journey, but I have ambitions for that and for my life. And I want to do things that will help the, the women, particularly who are following in my footsteps, because I don't want it to be as hard for them. I hope that when I am ready to leave this world, all of those little me's that are inside me will say, thank you, we did it. And then that we can close our eyes and my babies will be there. Oh, I can feel the tears in me that the kind of picture of you that you will live a meaningful and kind of useful life with what you've learned and it will help others and so that you can in some way hopefully protect them from some of the worst aspects of what you've gone through. But those babies inside you will kind of acknowledge and be grateful to you for the life you've led together, them inside you, and that you will all kind of die in peace. Is that what you're saying? It feels very poignant and very heartbreaking, but also beautiful. Weirdly, grief is beautiful. Yeah, it's painful. And we're really, really rubbish at it. <laughs> we're really terrible at dealing with it. <laughs> but it is beautiful. And when you can find the meaning for it all, I think that's more, more valuable than anything else in my life. That's a really beautiful place to stop, Henry, that grief is beautiful and it has a real depth of meaning and there's something about the clarity of the agony of it also brings a huge amount of heart and love with it. It's like as bad and as painful as it is, is also as beautiful and as the, the, the love is. So it's a kind of two sides of the same coin. Thank you so much. It's such a meaningful, beautiful conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank, thank you for you. having me on. Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. Hello, Sophie Samuel. Emily couldn't join us today. Reminds me of book club. Like You and I, we all meet so regularly now, and life happens when we meet. So sometimes people can come in book clubs, sometimes things are happening in people's lives. But it's still, the train still goes on, the book club goes on, and we, we still have to meet. And I really like that. Yes, it's nice, the consistency, isn't it? So we're talking about Henrietta, about permanent childlessness. I thought it was an incredibly moving conversation. I was so moved at the time, and then listening back, actually, I felt even more so. Yeah, it was really moving, wasn't it? And she so generous with her feeling you know you could really f feel her mm. pain in it one of the things I was reflecting on which is nothing new it was just one of those interviews that reminded me just the importance of deep listening truly listening to the other person's experience it's 
firstly, it can be just easy and casual to bring assumptions about what something might mean to somebody. But also how hard it is sometimes for any sort of listeners out there, for friends, partners, parents. I think one of the great gifts of training as a therapist is in the art of listening. And I think one of the cornerstones of that is kind of noticing when it's hard to listen and being curious about what it is in your world that makes it hard to actually spend the time to find out what it's like for someone else. Mm. Is it it's a practical thing? Do you not make time for really listening to other people? Is it that somehow someone else's perspective feels like it threatens the choices that you made? Is it that you find it hard to tolerate the suffering of someone else and you sort of want to make it better because it's hard to hear it? And I think something, you know, or is it something that they have a different view from you, different values? And all of those can be blockers to listening. And I really would advocate just for human general well-being for people to think about how they listen to reflect on that and for tolerance I think sometimes we're in a phase I don't know what you think mum I think sometimes we're somehow in a phase where people feel culpable even to listen to someone who has a different point of view from them to let them give voice to a view that you disagree with or that you think is possibly ethically different to what the standpoint you take I love the way you start what you're saying with the art of listening and deep listening. And I actually haven't heard it described as that. And I think that is so true. And then as you're describing it, really recognizing the preciousness of it, but what it does to us to be able to fully listen, to recognize when we don't want to, and to kind of know where we want to push back. And I think societally, that's such an important point, Soph, that People are constantly transmitting and needing to have an opinion and can feel like maybe there's something wrong if they're just listening and allowing somebody else's view. And my goodness, you might be in a different place if if we allowed lots of different views at the same time. I know, and it just occurs to me that even in that's partly an inadvertent consequence of social media. I'm not just one of doing social media bashing. It's more that it's a platform for talking, not a platform for listening. Just as it's designed, you're meant to put content on there. And obviously it's to listen to. By definition, you need to have something to say and doesn't really facilitate a point to make an opinion rather than a hyper platform for receiving, listening to others. You know, to go back to Henrietta and to other people who have her experience, Mm -hmm. men and women who have permanent childlessness that isn't their choice. Her deep, profound sadness was so alienated and unaccepted by others. You know, they would dismiss it, like go and have a quick date or go and get pregnant or or show her scans because thinking that she would really enjoy that. The message I got was... Again, it's to do with listening, but also like take a moment and try and get into the other person's shoes, which you get the access is through listening. But it's like put yourself down, Mm. (laughs) step across Mm. and think for a moment what this person is going through and your whole attitude will change. And I think there's something about quick fixes that can be so agonizing to receive and really just thoughtless. Mm. And I think so often people are trying to help. That's what's sort of tragic about it. 
isn't it? Yeah. Is that we want to help other people and often we just get it wrong because we think the thing we need to do is make it better. When yeah. actually 80%, 90% of the time we can't make it better. Um, we can only be alongside, can't we? And it made me think uh, a question that sort of comes up probably in different domains is can you grieve what you haven't had? I think often people undermine the legitimacy of that both in themselves or in other people. In fact, I think a huge amount of grieving is what we haven't had. The father we wish we had, the mother we wish we had, the job or life or future or, and in this case for Henrietta, the children she wished she had. And they felt... And partner. And partner and family. And that's not a lesser grief, but it's harder because it's less visible. I wonder if there's something that we could identify about missing what you don't have that would help people understand it. It's about space, isn't it? And it's about your sense of identity and often the dreams we've had or the pictures we've had for our life going forward. They have become what we fully expected. And then there's this moment that can be, in her case, her 30s, where you suddenly get this absolute grief shock in the shower. Like, oh my God, that isn't going to be me. And I, I've had many clients who said, I slept walk through my 20s or I slept walk through my 30s. And then I suddenly realized. And I don't really have any kind of advice about how you can make sure that you don't sleepwalk. Or... Go to therapy. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. <laughs> but it's the extreme and the assumption, and then there's somehow there's a gap in between of actually what you're doing to make that happen, like how you live your days, how you build your life, or that is your life. And I was thinking that she'd made that decision, as many of us had. I'm not at the next person I date is going to be the one, and unconsciously that influenced all her dates, but she didn't know it. And I think we've all made decisions like that. I'm not going to get hurt like that. Yes, it's the power of the story you tell yourself about yourself, isn't it? Lots of those expectations about the future are wrapped up in identity and who you are and who you think you're going to become because of who you think you are now or who you hope you become. And sometimes that's an inherited story, you know, that we're living a story without realising it that was something that our parents expected of us. And so we sort of, without even knowing it, we sort of put it on and carry it. And then there's this devastating moment of realising it it was never what we wanted or it was actually, we never went through the process of... Deciding. Yeah. It's one of those ones actually where I would say connection to the body is helpful. I think having a time to attune doesn't need to be in therapy. It can be in any way. It can be on your own. It can be in meditation, be in a walk. (laughs) How is it all actually feeling? Like, how is it actually feeling? Like when we're driven by the story, we're often driven by the head and we're not so connected to the experiential, like, is this really how I want to spend my life? It's like if I check in. Mm. Like your inner wisdom. Yeah, your sort of intuition, your body, your feeling state. You're much better than that, at that than me, so. Because busyness is the thing that disconnects us from our feeling state. So I'm like, like, and I get a lot less done (laughs) I mean if I stop I can tell you what I'm feeling but it takes me a bit of time to go in whereas I think you're you're leading from your internal wisdom don't you you lead from internal gosh that makes me sound rather highbrow I also think though I don't know what you think about this mum 
is that I think people just have natural rhythms. This is this is not yeah. based on just to be clear academic information. Okay, just tell us though. Just that there's an inner rhythm that feels comfortable, and I think I have a slow inner TikTok. You have a fast one. You know those metronomes that you play for music. Oh yeah, my metronome goes tick tock <laughs> tick. <laughs> Your metronome goes tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. In my case, when I have to go fast, it feels very stressful. And in your case, when you have to be fl- slow, and there's obviously lots of things that feed into why our in- rhythm is like that. Yeah, you can only go at your natural pace. You can obviously make yourself go faster than what feels comfortable. But in terms of well-being, you know, the only good choice for someone to make is to to go on what feels good. And to kind of take this broader linking to Henry and to linking to the stories we tell ourselves Mm. is when we're in our family, we begin to look at our differences from our siblings, from our mum and dad, from our grandparents, and you can decide that I'm going to be like them and aim for them. And that can go against your internal actual instincts about what you're going to do for a job or how you're going to live your life or where you're going to live because you're so wanting to belong to the tribe, because we have such a instinctive need to belong and be the same. And so there can be such a pull to go outside of what your internal wisdom tells you and to listen to both, because I think we need both, really. You need to belong and you need to allow yourself to be who you are. Mm. And that reminds me, in terms of Henrietta's experience, in a family, but also societally, isn't it? When you do sort of fit in, often your story is more visible, more talked about, more comfortable. And if your story is different to cultural expectations, family expectations, then you can feel like you've become invisible. She talked about it as an exile, that she felt completely exiled. And until she felt validated and allowed to grieve these children who have names, yeah. Sam, Maggie, and Oh, me. they really made me cry, actually, that bit. Mm-hmm. I know, that made me cry. She wanted to be welcomed in as she was. And it, uh, Jodie Day, who's written this book about childlessness, helped her so she could find a tribe. But we do need to find a belonging, but also bridges to the people who we need. Mm. But on that note, I suddenly thought, are we going to risk going through the podcast without truly talking about childlessness? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, unconsciously that we've just gone mm. around the houses and we haven't actually talked about that. About permanent childlessness, which this sort of profundity for her, since it wasn't by choice, the profundity of the grief. It's a whole reorganising of self, isn't it? I guess it's one of those shocks to the system because it influences her whole imagined future mm. of old age, of all, what it's all going to look like. I mean, I think it's a evolutionary drive is to have children to survive that, you know, we are wired to procreate to survival of the species. So I think there's like an evolutionary aspect to it. There's definitely a societal norm to it. And then as we have talked about is the version of ourselves we imagined of being a parent. And then there isn't that role, but also There's the fear, like, what's going to happen to me in old age? Like, who's going to look after me? Who's going to care for me? 
you know, if my partner dies, who's going to love me? And also finding meaning because many of us find meaning through parenting and the love we have for our children and the future that they have. It's almost limitless, the grief, I think, she's experiencing. And the work is finding a way of acknowledging and allowing that and expressing it, which she does through arts, which I think is incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. But also finding a different meaning that enables you to have purpose and connection in your life. Yes, it's that dual task, isn't it? Of both when one not wiping out the other and still enable yourself to build a new life around this new reality that you don't want. That's what's so hard about this kind of grief. For many of us, it's not what you wanted. That it's much harder to embrace it when you're still resisting it. And I think that's the power of what maybe people can take from this conversation is that coming to the point that she knew she wasn't going to have children then did open a door to a different way of meaning. It was extremely painful, took a long time. She thought it would be just one shower, grief strike. and It's taken years and it's lifelong, as we know with grief, that it's an ongoing process. But without that, she wouldn't have found the connection to herself and where she is now, which is important. So on that note, I really thank Henry for her openness and for, gosh, such a powerful conversation. And thank you to everyone who is listening. If you want to watch the interview, it's now on my YouTube channel. I have a newsletter on Substack, so do please subscribe. And of course, if this episode you think could be helpful to anybody you know, do please share it. And to help others find us, we really appreciate it when you rate and subscribe. Thank you.